speaking on the topic of sexual purity, we always need to go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two, God made them male and female. God created men and women, and he designed that a man and his wife would be united in a special way for mutual service, mutual joy, mutual connection. God created sexual intimacy, and he gave it to us. It's a gift. It's it's a wonderful gift, and it's a powerful gift in order to celebrate and unite again a man and his wife. Tragically, because of the power of that gift, any abuse or violation of God's design brings disastrous consequences. Those consequences can be seen in our own individual lives, but we also see them in society and in culture. Biblically, we see an example of sin and the ensuing pain in the first chapters of the Bible. At the end of chapter two, it says Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. Then you come to chapter three. Sin enters the world through Satan, through Adam and Eve. And for the first time ever, Adam and Eve feel shame. There's a shame over their body. It says they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. With the coming of sin came a vulnerability We understood that we were sinners and then we understood that others could now sin against us so we were susceptible and we were insecure. We were exposed and we were threatened. Adam and Eve did what they could to cover themselves but it wasn't enough because not long later God comes walking into the garden and Adam says, I heard the sound of you and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That was after it tells us they made fig leaves. Those man-made coverings weren't enough to cover their shame. It was not possible for God to sin against Adam, but that's not what mattered. The fear and the shame he experienced was connected to the presence of sin. Something had fundamentally changed in the nature of man. Adam and Eve had been given a body by God for good It was designed for good, but now there was a vulnerability. These were the devastating consequences of sin. And as the story in Genesis, the story of humanity progresses, we continue to see a connection between sexual sin, which is a rejection of God's design, and human suffering. The first mention we have in the Bible of a breach in God's design concerning marriage comes in chapter four of Genesis. One of Cain's descendants is a man named Lamech and he takes two wives. That would be an expression of greed and selfishness. Again, a rejection of God's original design. One man shall leave his father and mother and cling and the two shall become one flesh. He rejects God's design And that selfishness, that greed eventually gave way to murder. Lamech boasts about it to his wives. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech couldn't tolerate to be offended And so he put himself in the place of God and he murdered. 
one way or another, the rebellion of sexual sin is going to lead to and be connected to pain and suffering. That's part of the reason why the Bible is so clear and so explicit concerning sexual purity. God's design, God's commands are not difficult to understand. One man, one woman committed in marriage, that's God's design. But what we have is sinful, rebellious hearts And so these commands are exceedingly difficult to obey. So many times we pursue the passing pleasures of the world rather than the eternal treasures of knowing and walking with God. A Christian understanding of sexuality is a vital part of spiritual life. It's not extra It's fundamental, and and we see that in the example of the Thessalonian church. This was, remember we said, a baby church. Paul goes, he preaches for three weeks, he has to leave soon after, but even in that short time, he taught them concerning these things, and then later, when he writes them this letter, he repeats these things. Look again at verse one, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verse one, he says, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I've already told you these things. And he's telling them that obeying God in this arena of life is how we please the Lord, and he's calling them, and in that, calling us to continue growing in that. God's will for your life, according to verse three, is that you be sanctified, holy, set apart, That means that the holiness of God is demonstrated practically in the way you live. We are called to be lights in a dark world. And sexuality is one arena where the world can so clearly see a difference. So many things have changed in the past 2,000 years technologically, but the first century Roman Empire wasn't much different from our own, especially with regard to sexuality. It was a culture that rejected and mocked God's design. And not only did they tolerate, but they promoted all kinds of wicked immorality. And so in that, God's instruction for us to be holy is stay away. That's verse three. He's unpacking what it means to be holy. He says, you need to abstain from sexual immorality. That's the first expression of holiness with regard to sexual purity. You stay away Run from what it is that the culture promotes. That is to pursue purity at the level of your heart. The second expression, the second element of God's will is verses four and five. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. So we're called to be pure at the level of our hearts and we're called to be pure at the level of our bodies. You don't want to allow, like the Romans did, some artificial distinction. Well, God cares about my heart, but this is just my body that does it. God cares about the condition of your heart and God cares about what you do with your body. We come today to verse six and we find a command now for purity at the level of our relationships. We're to guard our heart We are to guard our bodies, and now thirdly, we are to guard and protect one another. This final element of God's will comes to us in the form of a negative. Verse six, again, unpacking God's will. No one is to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. 
in this matter means he's still talking about the area of sexuality. And he uses two different words to describe what it means to sin sexually against someone else. He says, don't transgress and don't wrong. There's an overlap. I don't think he's trying to push a strong distinction, but it is helpful to think about these two words. The word transgress literally means to cross a line, to cross a boundary. You're going beyond some limit. It's the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament. But the idea is you're going beyond the boundary that God has set in place. That's contained in the the, the noun transgression. You're stepping outside the line. The second verb in ESV says don't wrong someone. Literally it means to take advantage of. Some translations have that. Other translations say don't defraud or don't violate the rights of someone else. The idea behind the word is that you have someone in a weaker or more vulnerable position and you take advantage of them for your own personal selfish gain. It's a type of stealing. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word was used um, in Ezekiel as he describes how the rich leaders would pray and take advantage of the poor. They, they should have been protecting, they should have been providing, they should have been uh, supporting, but instead they exploited them. Speaking of Israel, this is what Ezekiel twenty two twenty seven says, her princes, her leaders in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives, to get dishonest gain. And Jesus repeats that in the New Testament when he attacks the Pharisees. You you are taking advantage of the people. You devour widows' houses. You exploit them. That greedy, predatory heart can manifest itself financially and it can manifest itself sexually. You do not take advantage of someone else. You do not cross that line with another person. That's a clear principle across the board in in the world. Whether it's your relationship with your spouse, whether it's your relationship with a believer or an unbeliever, but here in Paul's instruction, his focus is on church life. Clearly that type of sin, you see it in the news, it's going to continue, but within the family of God, there is to be no place for this. Verse six, do not, again, transgress or wrong a brother, and and that's a masculine term, brother, but it's not only being applied to men. Greek, similar to Spanish. You say hermanos to mean everybody. It means everybody. It's someone in the faith, a brother or sister. Do not sin against, do not take advantage of a brother or sister in the faith. There is no place for this in the family of God. The word brother is a reminder that we're part of the same spiritual family. We're made in God's image and we have the same heavenly father. And so the relationships between us, young and old, should be characterized by purity and by brotherly love, not by greed or covetousness. Sadly, as we'll see in a a little bit, there are numerous examples in the scriptures and then we get to see them in human history of men, particularly men who've used the church for their own wicked, selfish desires. What does it look like? It's one thing to understand what these words mean, but what does it look like practically? How does someone transgress or take advantage of someone else sexually? I just want to help you think about some categories. Let me give you three different categories, and I'm going to go from the more subtle ways that it can happen to the more violent ways that it can happen. 
The first way you can sin against someone sexually is through seduction. Seduction, you, you seduce them, you entice them, you tempt them. Guys and girls can be guilty of this. In the scriptures, because I think because of the, the, the susceptibility of men, particularly with regard to our lust, the emphasis of this in the scriptures is on women. The Bible repeatedly calls women to modesty. One example of that is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Many, many years ago, Western culture prized modesty. Parading your sexuality or flaunting or calling attention to certain parts of your body was scandalous. That was for prostitutes and adulteresses. And now our culture says, no, that's what makes you a woman. If you got it, flaunt it. Don't let anybody bring you down. And that is a message opposed to what it means to honor Christ. Modesty begins in the heart and then it shows up in how you dress and how you present yourself. To be modest ultimately means that you want the attention placed on Christ, not on yourself. An immodest heart is one that wants attention. There are many different ways to do that. You can actually be all covered up and still have a heart of immodesty. In ancient cultures, the women who would be fully covered up, some would wear bells on their ankles. When you walked around, you could hear who was jingling to attract attention. Ladies in particular, you need to understand, the Bible never says it's a sin to be attractive or to be beautiful. In fact, we're even told about specific women who are uh, Sarah, Rebecca, Esther. There's more than that. Abigail, one of them in particular, it says she was beautiful of face and of form. It's not a sin to be beautiful. But there's a difference between a person who is attractive and a person who wants attention based on how they look or how they behave themselves. One example of what not to do is the adulterous woman of Proverbs chapter 7. She goes out, she's dressed in a, in a way to attract attention. She's using alluring words. She says, come to my home. My husband is gone. My couch in my bed is ready. She's out to seduce. She cares more about her self-confidence than she does about the glory and the holiness of God. Again, it's not her attractiveness that makes her sinful. God designed women to be beautiful. You read Genesis chapter 6, it says the sons of, of, of God, which, I, which, which is a reference, um, it says the sons of, sons of God, I, I believe is a reference to angels. Angels even took notice of the beauty of women. But God has also said that the fullness of a woman's beauty, the nuances of her body, are designed by him as a gift to her husband and to him alone. So when you read Song of Solomon and you read about this husband praising in and delighting in the beauty and the curves of his wife, you tell yourself, that's a good thing. That, that blesses God. But sharing those elements of your body publicly or now on social media does not honor God. And it doesn't show love to your brother and your sister in the Lord. I think it's helpful to have women, older and younger especially, have specific conversations about these kind of things because you're helping battle this idea that the world has placed in your mind that it's, it's good to look good. 
If the world says you look good in a dress or in a pair of jeans, and if you feel better about yourself in some way when you wear something, that doesn't mean you're honoring God. This culture has warped our minds so much that we don't even see the inconsistencies. I assume most of you would agree that it would be inappropriate to show up in your underwear at church, at work, to go out like that to the grocery store or to school. We would say, no, that's not appropriate. It doesn't honor God. You shouldn't be showcasing your body like that, whether people want to see it or not. But then culturally, that same person goes to the beach or goes to the gym and the rules magically change. Somehow, in those cases, it's okay for the curves of your body to be broadcast to the world. At the risk of sounding puritanical, I'm gonna quote a Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. This is nothing new, even in that era, 1700s, 1800s, the pastors understood how easy it was for a woman to grab a guy's attention and then in his words, snare them in their lust. Here's what he would say to women. You must walk among sinful persons as you would do with a candle among straw or gunpowder. Commenting on that thought, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth, some of you know her from her podcast and, and she's written various books, she said this, as Christian women, our clothing choices can either help men succeed morally or put temptation in their path so they may find it difficult to overcome. It's very wise, very important Advice, And again, modesty applies to men and women, but we as moms and dads need to be teaching this to the next generation. We don't do it in a legalistic way. We don't do it in a prudish way. We do it in a way that exalts the beauty of God's design, but also in a way that teaches the reality of sin in our hearts and sin in the world. That's the first possibility for sinning against someone else sexually. You seduce, you entice. Let me move on now to the second possibility. You can sin against them by seduction. Secondly, you can do it by pressure. I won't spend a lot of time, I think it's clear enough, but this is just one step farther than temptation, than producing temptation. Seduction is focused on you, but pressure starts to move into the other person. You're encouraging them toward sexual sin. There could be a circle of friends who are pressuring someone among them to go farther in their relationship with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. It could be the boyfriend or the girlfriend who says to their partner, we need to move this. Let's cross the boundaries that God has set in place for holiness. That is to sin against someone sexually. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul addresses the unmarried. That would include widows. That would include people who might have been divorced. He says to them, if you cannot exercise self-control, then get married. And in the context, he says that's a marriage to a believer. You, do not, you, do not, you should not be bound together with an unbeliever. In some cases, marriage might be the most wise and God-honoring response. In other cases, the better option is to develop patience and to develop self-control. If you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend and he or she is pressuring you to cross boundaries which God and your conscience have set in place, you need to have a serious conversation and potentially step away. And if they don't want to stop that, you need to leave. 
And the Song of Solomon, again, this is a book that exalts the beauty of romance. It delights in it. It exalts the beauty of physical intimacy. But there, there's a line that's repeated three times. It says, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. That's kind of the chorus. If you can picture the man singing, the woman singing, then the chorus, the friends come in. That's what they sing. And I think on one occasion the wife says that as well, or the bride-to-be. Do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, there's a time and a place for love. And you need to be patient. That's the kind of things your friends should be telling you. It's exciting, but it's not time yet. That's the opposite of pressuring someone. The final possibility is the most violent of the three, and that is to sin against someone sexually by force. So you can do it by seduction, you can do it by pressure as you go out, and then you can do it by force. This is the most aggressive way it can happen, and our culture would include acts like rape, sexual abuse, and maybe just culturally at large, things like human trafficking. It's much more common in our country than many people like to think or admit. This would also include things that people do without the knowledge of the other person, a type of exploitation. To sin against someone by force is to take advantage of their weakness. That happens when an adult takes advantage of a child. That happens when a man violates a woman. It happens when someone begins to make threats and forces them into some form of slavery. It is using intimidation or force so that someone will comply. And it's rampant, even though we don't hear about it. It's rampant in the entertainment industry. It's rampant among cartels bringing immigrants in. They subjugate and they enslave, and many times for sexual purposes. This is the ugly side of our culture but it's to have no place in the church. If modesty is aimed particularly at women, this is particularly aimed a little more at men because God has made us stronger. We need to hear this. We need to teach this to our boys. The strength that God has given us is not to intimidate. It's not to force. It is to protect. It is to provide. It is not so that we can take advantage of others. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Paul condemns false teachers. He says they deny God's power and they are out capturing women burdened by their sins. You have women who are in sin and this so-called pastor, because of their weakness and their frailty in that moment, begins a predatory relationship. In 2 Peter and Jude pick up the same thing. They say they're, they're regarding, they, they speak of, of wicked, false teachers who prey on the weak, seeking to feed their sensuality. It's not new. You hear about it with cults and a love cult. We're all family, sisters here. This has been going on not just since the beginning of the church, but since the early generations of man. It's nothing new, it's a perversion of God's design. There are, in the Old Testament at least, two vivid examples of rape. One is in Genesis 34, one is in 2 Samuel 13. Both end in death. In Genesis 34, there is a foreigner who forces himself on a daughter of Jacob, and his sons, Simeon and Levi, respond. 
In retaliation, they slaughter not only that man, they slaughter all the men in that city and they loot the town. And that's why when you jump to Genesis 49 and God pronounces blessing on, uh, uh, through Jacob, he pronounces blessing on his sons, he jumps over Simeon and Levi for their violence and the blessing goes to Judah. Horrible consequences. The sin compounds. In 2 Samuel, you have David's son Amnon. He, He rapes a woman named Tamar. Tamar was a sister of Absalom, who was another one of David's sons. David had multiple wives, and so family dynamics were a little unconventional. But similar to what happened in Genesis, uh, two years later, Absalom can't let this go. He murders Amnon in retaliation. Two examples showing us not just how grievous the sin is, but how sin compounds. In my college years, speaking to two friends and seeing the resulting, the unbelievers and seeing the resultant hate and anger and fear because of these kinds of things. Force can happen in a marriage. Force can happen outside of marriage. In Deuteronomy 22, there's a passage that speaks to a man who violates a woman by force who's married or, or, or engaged to another man. The punishment there is that he be stoned to death. It says that sin is like a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. It's, it's a wicked sin against another, ignoring that they've been made in the image of God. A law like that helps remind us that God has a heart for the weak. God has a heart for the vulnerable. He is the father to the fatherless. He cares for the orphans and the widows. He loves them. He protects them. And to take advantage of someone else who is weaker ultimately is an attack on the heart of God. And so that's why in verse six, after Paul's prohibition, he follows it up with a severe warning. And he reminds the Thessalonians, this is not the first time I've told you this. Look at the end of verse six. He said, in all these things, he says, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is not the first time he's told them this. Why should we make sure we do not sin against a brother or sister? Why shouldn't we take advantage of someone else, particularly in the church of God? Why not? Verse six, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Simeon and Levi and Absalom were not to take personal revenge on the man who sinned against their sister, but they should have understood that God would take his vengeance. To be an avenger is to be the one who deals out justice. God is judge, God is executioner. God is the father of that sister or brother that you have sinned against. He will deal with it. He will come to the defense of the weak and either in his righteous wrath or in his fatherly discipline, he will come down forcefully upon the offender. God will not let it go until it's been dealt with. This is not revenge. This is divine justice. This is a God-ordained punishment for whoever would cross that line, whoever would take advantage of one of his own. Paul said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Vengeance, that's related to the word avenger, one who deals out justice. Let me share with you how Jesus talked about this and I want you to listen to how serious he spoke about those who sin against the children of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record these words. 
He says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He's not saying that's the best thing. He doesn't say for society. He says for him. Why? Because that horrible death is better for you than the judgment of God that will come upon you. Woe, he continues, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. God will not ignore it when someone violates one of his own. Practically speaking, God's vengeance can come through the law. That's what Romans 13 says. It is an avenger, a minister of God. More than that, even if someone can escape earthly judgment, God's vengeance will come on the final day of the Lord. If you have your Bibles open to Thessalonians, go over just a page or so to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, here's what Paul says to a church, they're suffering. It's not, it doesn't seem to be, appear to be something sexual, but they are being afflicted, so the principle applies. Pay attention, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, since indeed, we'll start after that, God considers it just, righteous, good, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the same thing. Not to not know God is to not obey God. Verse nine, they, unbelievers, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. God doesn't forget. God does not ignore your sin. One way or another, he's gonna deal with it. Speaking more specifically on the topic of sexuality, Hebrews 13 says, let marriage be held in honor. Again, elevate it among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That comes just a few chapters after the author of Hebrews said, the Lord will judge. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We have people in our own church who've experienced the, anger, the anguish and the anger and the pain of being sinned against sexually. A passage like this reminds us that God sees that pain. He knows that pain. And he will have his vengeance. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong in waiting for that day because it will be ultimately not for personal vindication, but for the glory of God. In Revelation chapter six, after the world is united in its rebellion and its immorality, the saints who've been slaughtered cry out to God. Revelation six, they say, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's not a desire for personal justice or revenge. It's a desire for the glory of God to be revealed in the judgment of the sinners. 
How long till you avenge our blood? And God's response in Revelation 6 is just a little while longer. Just a little longer. And you go to the end of Revelation when Christ is getting ready to come with his armies and he will rule forever. The multitude in Revelation 19 cries out, hallelujah, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The smoke is an eternal reminder of the judgment of God. We serve a God of vengeance. That's actually a title used for him in Psalm 94. He is the God of vengeance and he will come and defend his people. So for those of us who've trusted in Christ We need to listen to these words. We need to allow the fear of God and our love for Christ to compel us to holiness. Do not cross that line with a brother or sister. But what if it's too late? What if as you hear and read these words, you recognize you have sinned like this? What if you have tempted someone else towards sin intentionally, deliberately? What if you have pressured or encouraged others into sin? What if you have forced yourself onto someone for your own greedy desires? Then what? Is there any hope that you will escape the vengeance of God? Yes, there is. And there's only one. It's the hope of Jesus Christ. God may still show you mercy and forgiveness if you will call out to him trusting in the one who bore the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. Trusting in the one who was raised in complete victory from the dead, victory over sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin. Call out for mercy. And God will wash you. God will spare you. We're not to rely on religious rituals. You don't need some kind of ceremony to win God's favor. What you need is to have the finished work of Jesus Christ applied to you, and that happens by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You accept what God has done. Adam and Eve came with shame and with fear. They did what they could to cover the effects of their sin, but it wasn't enough. Human effort wasn't enough. God knew it, and so did they. And so, Genesis 3, God pronounces a curse upon the world. But in the curse on the serpent, he also gave a promise. A promise that a son would come one day and bring victory. And that's the victory we have in Jesus Christ. And then God took Adam and Eve's futile attempt to cover themselves with leaves and he mercifully sacrificed an animal. It's the first death recorded in in the Bible. Genesis says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin 
and he clothed them. God took their shame and their fear and their guilt and he provided a covering. And he does that still today through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we think about the multitude of ways that this culture has ripped out of its design the beauty that you created. We do, on the one hand, want to elevate your design, prize that design, what is to be private and reserved, but beautiful and joyful and powerful. And we have seen it in every generation, and particularly in our culture now. We see industry and men and women pervert your truth. And we read and are reminded that your judgment will come. Father, we pray that you would help us teach these things to the growing generations. May we excel in these things more and more. May we teach our young women the joy of marriage. May we teach them the, the beauty, inherent beauty you have given them. And we teach our sons to prize and to protect women, to care for them, to honor and to serve. And we pray that in our church, among brothers and sisters, this would be a family characterized by purity and safety and joy and love. We all deserve your judgment, God. We're grateful for the sacrifice that we have received in Christ. You have given us forgiveness. You have reconciled us to yourselves. Being sons of wrath, you've made us sons of the living God. And we look forward to the day when those who reject you will know Christ for who he is, either in faith or in judgment. Remind us that you are a God of vengeance help us protect and proclaim your design in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.